Just a quick listener's guide. Uh, we talk about Christian Porter's case from about uh, six minutes in to about 16. And then from 16 to 33, we are talking about some domestic violence situations. So if that's not the kind of thing you want to be listening to, uh, skip on past and enjoy the episode. Listening to Not Good Enough, an inadequate response to inadequate responses. I'm Evie. I'm Tom McLean. And I'm Tom Lang. And the vibe is all off. (laughs) It's It's just, it's not quite right today, and we're not quite right in lockdown. Yes, we're still stuck in lockdown in Victoria. Um, we're all going a bit crazy. How are you guys doing? I think our vibe is off because our, our dear leader is 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 <laughs> away. I refuse to recognise him as dear leader. <laughs> There's yeah, no I hierarchy mean, in this Obviously, it's podcast. an ironic dear leader. There's no respect for him. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, you know, how Australia has a dear leader. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Mitch is the scomo of the podcast. <laughs> He's why I'm going to say the worst shit. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> also, Isaac's here. Also, Isaac's here. Hello. I'm here. Uh, poor Isaac. Like having to deal with us in our headphones and constantly fact-checking us when we get a bit too spicy today. Yeah, you know how our mental health was really good, like earlier, but now we're in lockdown <laughs> we're so and well. it's less good. Just letting our international listeners know, we've been in lockdown for a little over a week in Victoria and it was supposed to end last week and the state government announced that it would be extended another week and so apparently this has given us a license to go a bit apeshit. Yeah. It's a bit reminiscent of last year's really long lockdown when it was in winter and everyone was really depressed and eating a lot of carbs. Mm. So I think everyone's feeling the vibe right now. To be mm. fair, a one-week lockdown is not a thing. Like, that doesn't make any sense. The incubation period is longer than a week. A one-week lockdown is 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 a joke. Yeah. Yeah. When they first announced the lockdown, I was like, it's going to be a two-week lockdown. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> and I was right, everybody. I knew it. <laughs> is the, the sad thing is that that period we have since, when did the big lockdown end? Like November or December or something. Between then and now, honestly, has felt like a break from lockdowns. And now we're back in lockdown. Some part of me is like, oh, this is normal. We're back to normal. Yeah. Oh, right. It feels like we had our summer holiday. That's how broken I, I am. I absolutely have that. Yeah. I think it's because just it's like, well, you know, the coronavirus is still at large. So there's really a sense of like, we really could go back into lockdown at any time. And indeed, uh, yeah. we did. So I, I think that until pointing a finger at the federal government here, until the majority of the population is vaccinated, it really is yeah. the case that lockdown is the norm and non-lockdown is the break. Yeah. yeah. We were just getting away with something for a couple of months. Yeah, it's totally a reminder that, yes, we are still in an international pandemic and things aren't fixed yet. If anything, things are very much not fixed, especially in Australia. Um, we'll go into it a bit later in this episode, but I I struggle not to be jokeified every single day thinking about vaccines. That's all I'm going to say right now. Mm. Just, just before we get into ripping on the federal government for, you know, <laughs> destroying everything that we love, I, 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 I do want to sort of acknowledge how bizarre it is to sort of be in Melbourne in lockdown with, you know, the case new cases today was two and yesterday was like four, I think, mm. where we've gone into lockdown, it mega fucking sucks, and I was like talking to a mate in London uh, mm. like last week when we'd just gone back into lockdown, I was like, oh man, yeah, it's terrible, we've just gone back into lockdown, and they're like... Yeah, things are pretty bad here as well. And it's like, yeah, because you're getting, you know, still hundreds of cases a day, not in lockdown. I don't know how many, you know, cases a day the UK is having, but it's more than fucking two. It's it's more than a hundred, I think, isn't it? And they're not in lockdown. It's it's such a strange conversation to have yeah. and sort of position to... It's just weird. It's weird, man. It's one of those situations, like, no, no situation is going to be the same in any individual country depending on a variety of reasons. But it is so insane to me how different the conversation is about a pandemic in countries where you think, you would think, uh, from a very plain perspective that would have similar views on how to control a contagious virus. Like just yeah. the, the the complete disparity in lockdowns, in spread of vaccines, in understanding of what a virus does. It's yeah. 
UK's UK's daily cases six thousand on Friday. Yes. Six thousand daily new cases yeah. in. Okay, we've had two. And people still dying, mind you. Oh yeah, still <laughs> dying on a daily basis. See, but on the bright side, they're allowed to go bouldering. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, well, here's the thing: like, I'm a real like. I'm I'm one of those people who's like, look, you got to get the vaccine. Lockdowns are essential, stuff like that. But even I, at this point, I'm like, man, I almost feel like I'm I'm hearing the people out there who are like, why the fuck are we having a lockdown? It's such a small amount of cases for a couple of houses. We should be able to like contain that without locking down all of Greater Melbourne, kind of thing. Yeah. Because at this point, we're locking down. Because the systems are so fucked, the only button they can push is lock everything down. Yeah. And that's the mm. only button they've ever been able to push because they don't have a vaccine button. They don't have a tracing button. They don't have a. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I, I, I would say a, they've got a tracing button. They don't have button. a vaccine button. <laughs> the government's sitting there with a huge vaccine button, <laughs> just not pushing it like, no, we don't have a vaccine button. That's <laughs> true. It's, it's behind you, mate. They do fucking have that button. Christian Porter dropped his case against the ABC, his defamation case, and he held a press conference about it and he just said a lot of stuff that just wasn't true. Um, his, his, it's his just press conference was like, those cowards of the ABC have backed down knowing that they're wrong. They're like, you dropped the case, didn't you? Those cowards had their case against them dropped. I, I want to point out as well, we've talked about this in previous episodes, but this comes literally a week after him saying something akin to, well, the ABC shouldn't be spending taxpayers' dollars on litigating this. Like, who pays Mm. you, Christian Porter? Mm. It's the taxpayers. You're still spending taxpayer money. We've got half our taxpayer money fighting the other half. I was whinging about that on Twitter being like, he's paid by the taxpayer as well. Somebody like was like, oh, but once he's been paid, isn't it his money? It's it's like, oh, like, yeah, (laughs) I guess. But he also gets paid a stupidly huge amount of money to be an active detriment to the well-being of the nation. And he's in charge of deciding how much ABC gets paid. Yeah. That's the crazy <laughs> yeah. thing. And, and uh, as as a government minister, can write off a lot of things as well as expenses mm. that eventually have to be foot Like, the, the payment yeah, has to be footed by like the Yeah, he gets like $180 per day to spend on food if he wants. Like, yeah. It, it's like, yeah, once the taxpayers paid him, it is his money and he can do whatever he wants with it. But the fact of the matter is, it's a travesty that he's alive. So, oh it split hairs about where his money comes from. Like, I'm pretty sure if an MP doesn't use their allowance to contract Rebecca Giles during the financial year, they lose it. They lose it. They've got a contractor at least once a year for a high-profile case. Well, that money's gone. Every government MP has a Brett Walker per DM. <laughs> So there's something interesting that came out after him dropping this defamation case, which is quite, like, on the face of it, quite bizarre. The Age, or Fairfax, um, they published an article about Christian Porter's new relationship. Now, I'm not sure why in the public interest it would be that anyone would report on him quietly starting to date a Sydney-based criminal lawyer, but... It's the way it's written is very like gossip colony strange. It's such a bizarre article. While things have gone quiet on the legal front, there have been happier <laughs> developments in Porter's life. The minister has quietly started dating Sydney-based criminal lawyer Karen Espin. Like, what are you talking I about? Love, I love the language here. While things have gone quiet on the legal front, um, is a great way to say. Since Christian Porter dropped his defamation case because he was accused of rape. It's, yeah, it's like, oh my God. The section that really, I just, I read it and I was like, who is this for? Um, there is a section about little is known about the couple's common interests other than a shared love of the law and sour worm lollies. Also unclear shared is how Porter and Espen law. are met, but the legal community is a small one. And it just, it's a very odd article but what i like my hot take about it is singling out this woman in particular as his new partner it's a very mm. backhanded weird article like this woman has committed no crime in deciding to be christian porter's partner mm. 
She is just I mean, a lawyer. Well, not a legal my, my, my personal <laughs> judgment aside, this this person has not done anything to warrant an article about this, and I'm not sure why something like this is necessarily important in terms of other, anything other than giving colour to Christian Porter's personal life. I, I really dispute that. I think the thing that she did that warrants an article about her is released a statement with the MP saying that they were dating. Like, they've made a public... Like, is that oh, we don't want to. It's, it's, it's not a secret relationship, but it is a private matter. We don't want to intend to talk about it in any detail. They said in a joint statement with the MP. Like, y- y- if, if, if you don't want to talk about a thing, don't make a statement. No, no, no. In the, it, later on, it does say it was specifically to Fairfax. So it appears that, that they were specifically questioned about it. But again, this is something just to understand how the sausage is made in Canberra. Yeah, fine. Like, he's dating a lawyer. But it just, yeah, just the way in which it gives colour to a circumstance that no one should really know or care about. Not sure why. Yeah. I, 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 I honestly, I, like, I'm, I, you know, maybe this is <laughs> a spicy take, but this government has the blood of thousands of bodies on their hands. Right? Yeah. Specifically, Christian Porter has been instrumental in those deaths. I'm talking refugee deaths, deaths in custody, deaths from like robo debt suicides, deaths from just like the mistreatment of the poor, the, the, the admittedly small compared to the rest of the world coronavirus outbreak death. Like, there is so many actual human corpses that are directly attributable to the policies of this government. I think that if you're starting a romantic relationship with a high ranking MP of this government, like, that's fucking Ava Braun shit. Like, <laughs> I don't care about your personal well-being or privacy or anything if you're like, well, you know, what's a little 2,000 robo-debt suicides he likes to, to, you know, to get in the way of a little budding romance? Like, absolutely fuck you. What the fuck is the fucking matter with you if you're starting a new relationship to somebody? Oh, I didn't realise that he was the, the fucking attorney general of this government. What? Don't. <laughs> if you start a romantic relationship with a coalition MP, you just you're signing up to yeah you're also, <laughs> they're, they're also, monsters. What they, the fuck is the matter they, with you? You don't have a right to privacy <laughs> about this shit. Your your soul is committed to hell. Yeah, see, I, I, that's the thing though. Like my sort of moral misgivings about this person involved within a relationship with a, a politician who is responsible directly or indirectly for a vast number of very detrimental things to the entire Australian populace. It still makes this article very strange. I don't want to say very detrimental. I want to be so clear that it's thousands of corpses. It's, it's, it's not like the, the tax was, you know, inconvenient to me. Thousands and thousands of dead bodies. The, 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 only, the only morally valid reason to start a relationship with a government MP is to get close enough to slip anthrax into their drink, right? <laughs> like this. Uh, it, it, like, it's occurred to me why, though, that this kind of article exists. It's the same very, like, press gallery insidery sort of tone where- It's Annabelle people, Crabbe. Yeah, people love to talk about how they know all these connections, it's like me mm. when I talk about people on the internet who I've remembered from like 20 years ago and I love talking about how I remember these people for some stupid reason. But except it's the press gallery and this actually matters <laughs> where you, I don't – like it's not important to like puff up your chest and talk about how you know all these connections work and how the sausage is made. That just makes everyone just feel like they're on the outer of this entire sort of insular Canberra bubble and it just it keeps on repeating itself. Like, you know, this part of the whole discussion about, you know, sexual assault in Canberra, it talks about how Canberra is such an insular place and how reporters don't talk about things that happen there and how staffers don't talk about things that happen there. But now we're on, like, you know, the end of a massive defamation case and this cycle is just starting all over again. Great. Hmm. That's great. That's Really good to know. Yeah, I'm. I'm interested to see what he cooks. Um, on you know, kitchen cabinet or what <laughs> oh he wears on Dancing with the Stars because that machine. 
um, has to manufacture that consent, has to somehow get the cu- get the public okay again with, oh, I guess he did some stuff back in the day, but he's on Dancing with the Stars, so maybe it was all fine in the end. Maybe we shouldn't, you know, violently storm Canberra. But what I was just thinking of before is I've been watching The Serpent on Netflix, and if I've learned anything from watching that show about the real-life exploits of a horrible, you know, poisoner-slash-diamond smuggler is that women love a bad boy. <laughs> and who is a badder boy than the Attorney General of Australia? Yeah, really from the wrong side of the tracks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I, I think that we give these ghouls too much benefit of the doubt. I'm not giving them any benefit. They're bad people. I just compared him to a poisonous slash serial killer. <laughs> That's the thing. He could be a poisonous slash serial killer and he would be more morally clean than the person that he actually is. He could go, oh, what's he going to cook on kitchen cabinet? Oh, shit, a live dachshund puppy. Like, it's, it's you know, th- that's still better than what he's actually done. Yeah. And that was the first bit of the show. <laughs> It's been a big week for admitting that everyone just can't stop doxing domestic violence victims to their abusers for some reason. It's And by everyone, do you mean cops? I mean, cops, yes. But also just Australian authorities in general. It's a very disturbing trend that appears to have continued in two separate instances this week, mm. reported uh, both in The Guardian and ABC. Uh, previously in this particular niche... Um, of terribleness. A couple of years ago, you might recall that a woman in Queensland had her address deliberately leaked to her abusive ex by a police officer. It described in very derogatory terms. He was also charged for this. And of course, his conviction was overturned. So already off to a bad start. His conviction was overturned? His conviction was overturned. Did he not do it? <laughs> he, he, he was convicted of it and then he appealed it and then it was overturned even though he admitted to it. So that's So he, ad- he did do it, but they were just like, nah, yes. <laughs> don't do it again, though. It, it was basically like the, the, the consideration of overturning it was, well, he, he's a decorated officer and, like, you know, this would impact his career, so therefore we're going to overturn Jesus it. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, by the cool. way, in unrelated news, <laughs> in, in unrelated news, um, the Queensland Police Force is currently grappling with a rise in actual officers named as respondents in domestic violence orders. I'm talking officers themselves who have domestic violence orders against them. Yeah. There was 84 last year. Yeah. yeah. And the, the Queensland Police Forces are like, you know, currently wringing their hands talking about how they need to look inside and do a deve- oh. developmental shift in, in, in their thinking and understanding of you know, domestic violence. This week, New South Wales Police have revealed that they accidentally gave domestic violence victims phone data to her attacker. Now, I need to be very specific about what's happened here. This is not just any data. It's not just like photos. It's not some texts. When she reported what had happened, she gave her phone to the police on the understanding that they would save some texts of the night of a particular incident that happened. What she didn't know is that they imaged her entire phone and kept all that data and then gave that over to her ex. I don't even understand how, I mean, surely you can only do this on purpose with a bit of effort because you're giving a special file that is your entire phone's operating system or whatever, yes. to a person. That doesn't fit in an email, presumably. So, no, it does not. So the reason why I wanted to go into this is because I wanted to give our readers an understanding of how this actually happens. So this is the quote from the article from the ABC, which says, the police told Miss Spittles um, that they would only save messages from the night of the assault, but instead she discovered the software they used meant that they had downloaded everything. So what the New South Wales Police Force use and what a lot of um, police forces in Australia, both at the federal and state level use, they use um, a data recovery um, software and hardware as well. It can come in a, like a dual package called Celebrite. Now, Celebrite is 
is software and hardware developed? Sounds like an app that you can use to buy wine. I wish it were that innocuous because it really does sound like an innocuous name. <laughs> it is software developed and like funded by the Israeli Defense Force. It is oh, yeah. it is incredibly complicated hardware. Um, if you buy the actual like the device that you can use to image a phone, it's something like. 15,000 US dollars as a starting point. There was lots of like add-ons and stuff you can use. Presumably it's only something you can get if you're a cop or on the dark web. Yes, or yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It's it's exclusively <laughs> or that researcher who hacked into it and <laughs> wrote in his blog post about how he obtained a, a copy of the hardware and he's just like, I was just out for my morning walk this morning and I, uh-huh. I found it on the sidewalk. <laughs> <laughs> sure you did. Um so this this hardware is basically it's used by authorities to image devices entirely. Now, when I say image, Mm. that means it takes an exact copy of the entire data of the operating system, any sort of personal data that's attached to any apps, um, any sort of minute details such as MAC addresses, like the, the, the Wi-Fi connections that you make on your phone or the signals that your, um, your 3G data can make too. So it's just like having your phone. Pretty much, yeah. It's everything. It, it can get so deep that it like it can recover data that you didn't even know was still archived on the phone that you think might be deleted. It can get uh-huh. everything. So what has happened in this circumstance is basically the police have said to this woman, we need your text from that night. That will build the case against this guy. They took her phone. Mm-hmm. Instead of like even th- – there's even functionality, by the way, to only selectively do text. They didn't do that. They imaged the entire phone <laughs> mm. and they have kept that data on their servers. Lang, as you mentioned, it is incredibly hard to accidentally give this data away. It is a large, like, it's to say like your modern phone is like 120 gigs, right? So you're talking yeah. like 120 gigs worth of data. Yeah. Like, it could be on a USB, it could be on a hard drive or something like that, but you don't just accidentally think, oh, I'm meaning to give these texts to someone. It's not a PDF. I'm just going to give 120 gigs worth of this proprietary file to someone. Yeah. Like the only accidental way I can think about it happening is like, you know, they blundered and gave a USB to someone and they thought it was something else. But it is still (laughs) very hard to do that. Like when you think about the way in which evidence is collected, you need a register or custody register of all these things that you receive as evidence. That happens in legal discovery too. And to not track it to the point where you don't understand what's going in in and out of your system and to who it's going to, at best, massive incompetence. And the mm. worst part is, is like, you know, they said that he's been given specific training. This always happens. Yeah, he's been given specific training. Where was specific training beforehand? <laughs> Sorry, is he supposed to not know how big this is? Hey, don't give evidence to the guy who the victim is is trying to bring a case against. Maybe don't give her them her entire phone. Oh, okay. I'm just going to write that down. At this point, possibly worth pointing out that the man in question, is the ex, is a senior member of an outlaw motorcycle gang. Just wondering why the cops are sending him anything. Yeah. So, no, they, it says here they, they handed the information over a man with over a dozen previous domestic violence-related charges. Um, they handed the information over by mistake among other documents which he requested to defend his case in court. So it's like she's brought you to court for domestic violence reasons. He's like, I my lawyer needs the details of the case. And they're like, here you go. And also here's her entire phone with all of her contacts and all of her photos from the last 11 years. So, cool. Good job. It's baffling to me how this could happen in, like, accidental terms. I would love to see what their explanation is. I'm sure there's going to be some sort of an investigation into it in which we find out how this accidentally happened. Um, It's... it's, Sorry, it's absolutely... Like, every time I think about how much work goes into, like, secure information even in in just like a base legal sense and how many people need to sign off on personal data yeah it's it's incredible it's it's straight up a horror movie and if and she honestly needs to the the police force needs to pay her out damages equal to rebuilding her entire life basically this is the other thing the the article goes into a lot of detail about how this man was abusive to her it's actually very shocking so just a content warning ahead of time in case you want to read further about this particular case um but 
you know, she's very open about the fact she's like, this has ruined my life. You know, this man knows everything about me, about my family, about my friends. He knows exactly what to do. This is on par with like, you know, women who have had um, undercover police in their lives. That's it. Like their Mm. entire lives are just exposed. This is also not even the first time that this particular police department has leaked huge amounts of personal information to a perpetrator. God. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Just, yeah, this this secondary article about the, the previous time that they accidentally gave a bunch of personal information to an abuser. Uh, just, they're so fucking... Ah, oh, doing the thing where you're just like, oh, they're so useless. How are they making these mistakes? Very useless. Very uh, mistakes. The inaction. This is mm. a quote in the second article. Inaction by police was inexplicable. It's a big fucking mystery how it keeps happening by mistake, isn't it? Yeah. Really incomprehensible. Doesn't add up at all. It really <laughs> truly is that? a mystery. <laughs> really can't think about that any further. Yeah. What's that? What's that thing where incompetence is used as an excuse to cover for malice? Um, because it happens a lot. The government does it all the time. They go, oh, oh we need to look into that. Oh, I guess oh, we must have forgot where in reality. It's like when big companies go, oh, whoops, we underpaid our workers because it's complicated. Hmm, funny how you never overpay your workers because it's complicated. Yeah. It's funny how the police never accidentally give all the evidence of the abuser to the victim. And And part of that might be related to the earlier thing you said where... What was it? 84 police were implicated in domestic violence cases. Yeah. If they're faced with two people, who is your average Queensland cop going to relate to more on a personal level? Is it going to be the tough guy who has been abusing some woman or is it the female victim? As a Queensland cop, you know, you're probably, you've probably got more in, co- in common with the bloody, the perpetrator. Just, just purely on a stats basis. <laughs> Yeah, you're probably in the same footy team with him. (laughs) Have you guys seen the meme of the 40% police thing? Yeah. What's that? Which one? There's a basically, so there's a stat from an article from a while ago. It's an American focused thing. The stat from a while an article that found that about 40% of police officers were involved in some form of like perpetration of domestic abuse. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's obviously a. Very, very high number. And um, the the meme is basically to just, like, hop into any discussion of sort of police stuff uh, online and just try and frame a different stat as being 40%. Like, oh, yeah, just... um. Yeah, it's really important that we stand up for our brothers in blue. They're actually uh, trying to campaign for a forty percent um, like pay rise at the moment. Just Google forty percent police officers. You'll you'll find all the information. Oh, God. <laughs> well, it's because you, you know you're like we've got a job, and all of our applicants are beefy guys who want to hold a gun and wear wraparound sunglasses. What kind of people are you going to attract? And and be protected from charges if they mm-hmm. beat someone up. It's all about brotherhood. Being strong, looking stern, crossing your arms, your bouncers with a gun. So it's not just police who are uh, accidentally leaking um, domestic violence victims' details to their perpetrators. The National Disability Insurance Agency in Australia admitted this week that they had uh, leaked family information to an abusive ex-partner. Of a woman. So that includes things like, you know, names, addresses, places that, you know, the kids regularly go to. It Look, in this instance, it really does seem like it was a pure accident because I understand how custody arrangements can work, especially in the Centrelink system. It's not particularly good. Um, and this is more a case of how structural systems aren't built to cope with something as complicated as domestic violence Mm -hmm. and intervention orders and the idea that you need to suppress for safety reasons certain information that in normal custody arrangement circumstances you would be able to share. Mm. So it's not Mm. just about, you know, sensitivity training of NDIS or NDIA workers. It's literally about reconsidering how to structure the entire system. Um, And, I mean, that goes to the cops as well. (laughs) Yeah. Restructure that entire system, kind of like you restructure a forest when you build a coal mine. <laughs> <laughs> the the fact that the domestic violence cases are more complicated is also kind of like th- th- pushing a lot of s- sort of concepts under a rug there, where it's like they are more complicated and they do need 
sort of specific considerations around them and that sort of thing. But it's also just plainly true that domestic violence is really horrifyingly common. Mm. Oh, yeah. And yes. So, like, it, even though it is like, oh, it's a mistake, it, it really is like, it's a mistake, but it's also, like, definitely the case that you should have those structures in place to prevent against exactly that happening already. Absolutely. And how did you get this far without having those structures in place? Like, clearly, yes, they need specific considerations, but how did you not make how did you not consider those specific yes. considerations well ahead of time? I, I completely agree with that. Like when I say complicated, um, complicated is often used as a word to wave away things as too hard to be done. This is not yeah. too hard to be done. All it would take is literally just a flag or a trigger of some way to say this is a situation in which there is a domestic violence situation or there is an intervention order and this information can't be disclosed to the other party. Like, obviously, I'm saying this in very plain terms, but the understanding is there. It is not impossible to understand. That's the thing. The details are complicated, but the principles are so straightforward. Yes. <laughs> and it is also a failure of those principles. It's just the classic thing of if you're, if you're setting up a system to deal with any kind of welfare or legal staff or vulnerable people, and you're not prepared to deal with the difficulties of domestic violence... You're not prepared to run that system. Yeah. Like, that that should be your base level. It's like if you're creating a food supplement and you're not checking for allergens, you shouldn't be creating a food supplement. Even if it's only, only going to kill 1% of people, sorry, that's the rules. you got to look out for those 1% of people. Because if you make sure the most vulnerable people are taken care of, then you're making sure everyone's taken care of. Umbrella species, people. And, and honestly, I'm, I'm a bit tired of, like, apologies after the fact. So, like, the minister for NDIS, so Linda Reynolds, she said she was made aware of the breach on Friday morning, a day after the NDIA briefed her office, but declined to comment further on the details of how it happened. She offered an unreserved apology and said, my first priority and the NDIA's first priority is the safety and privacy of the woman and the family concerned, and then also how to work out how this happened and to make sure that it ha- doesn't happen again. Well... I'm pretty sure that woman just told you how it happened. It, if it was your first priority, it wouldn't have happened in the first place. What's And what's your accountability if you don't get that fixed? How are we holding you for this, Linda Reynolds? Yeah. yeah. The- uh, are you putting your job on the line? <laughs> no, no, no. When I said an unreserved apology, I, I obviously was reserving my job. That's, <laughs> that's one of the reservations of the apology. This is like coming back to the police thing again. It, there never seems to be any real penalty for anyone who does this. There's, you know, training Uh, and restructuring and then... Look, Evie, that specific training is very boring. (laughs) (laughs) It's online, you've got to tick boxes. And it's always reactive. It's always reactive rather than proactive. Yeah. So, as we were talking about earlier in the episode, Melbourne's locked down at the moment and, uh, well, the, the federal government, in their, in their thing that they love to do. They're not fucking helping because they're op- opposed to the idea of helping in principle. They're like, oh, it looks like this would benefit people, so no. That's 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 the news for this one. They're not... We need money because we're in lockdown and all the casual workers can't go to work mm-hmm. and uh, that means that they're just sort of running on fumes. And yeah. uh, the, the only part of that sentence that Scott Morrison likes to hear is fumes. He's like, oh, natural gas fumes? No. <laughs> oh, God. Just everybody's very poor at the moment. So he's Everyone's like, get fucked. After paying their so groceries. Um, he's, yeah. So they've really held out on any kind of welfare. They're like, oh, it's only a week or two. Come on, guys. Just just get get your mortgage a bit. Or, you know, just get your, your savings. What fucking savings? Casual workers have just come out the end of a lockdown pandemic situation. Straight into another one. He said he doesn't want to create an incentive for states to lock down by creating welfare. As if incentive. state they governments don't do it for give fun. a shit. They no, the state governments fun. aren't like, we need to get our casual workers paid. We need to destroy our economy. Let's lock down so the Commonwealth government has to give us money. No, it's wildly unpopular. Sorry, I just have this idea in my head of Morrison thinking that Victoria just loves to do it for a laugh because we want money. I, I genuinely think that's like what they mm. have in their head that we're just doing it so we get a handout. This is like, I mean, that's his thinking of any sort of person seeking welfare. Yeah. It's it's just fucking, hey, Scott Morrison, we already have an incentive to lock down. It's called halting the spread of the novel coronavirus. Mm. <laughs> Give us the money, you bastard. I think, yeah, it's it's that weird thing because no one in government has 
any understanding of what it's like to be on the poverty line. Or if they were on the poverty line 40 years ago, it's been a long time since they've been there because they get bloody hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Some of the best played politicians in the world. And so when they see someone getting free money, they see that as, oh, they're getting $500 a week for nothing. Wow, that's just a pretty nice little bonus. But they don't understand that without that $500 a week, they're dead. They're under a bridge and they've starved to death. Uh, look, it's the classic um, Lucille Bluth of what can a banana <clears throat> cost Michael $10? Like, they just, like, yeah. it's not understanding the value of a dollar. And so giving free money, they're like, what? And, and so eventually they got talked into creating the, the temporary COVID disaster payment, um, which honestly is something we should have had on the books a year ago, for fuck's sake, people. Yeah, but not as a wizard's <laughs> riddle. <laughs> the problem is, yeah, because the government hates giving you money, you've got to take it off them like, taking a ball off a puppy. you got to answer me these questions three, like. <laughs> yeah, you've got you've to go through the seven trials. You've got to be, you've got to be over 17. Okay, all right, fair enough. You've got to be living or working in a Commonwealth-defined hotspot. Now, this is interesting because lockdowns are run by the states, but the Commonwealth decides whether you're in a hotspot here. So if the state says you're in a lockdown and the Commonwealth because they fucking hate the states, goes, I don't reckon you should be in a lockdown, Victoria. I don't <laughs> think we, we want to define this as a hot spot. They can say, sure, the state can lock you down as much as you want, but you're not getting the payment. So they're holding the state hostage. Um, okay, so you've got to be living or working in a Commonwealth-defined hotspot. You have to have had work cancelled. You have to have no pandemic or sick leave. You have to not be on any other sort of welfare. That's fucked. You have to have less than, yeah, less than $10,000 in liquid assets. So it doesn't matter if you've got multiple investment properties or super. Ten, less than $10,000 savings and shares that you can immediately liquefy. If you meet all of these conditions, you get $500 if you would have been working 20 hours a week. You get $325 if you would have been working less than 20 hours a week. And if you're a casual... Or unemployed, sorry, why aren't you dead already? You get nothing. All of those payments are well below the poverty line. Yeah, and it's also worth pointing out, that, like, just like, hit those numbers again. $500 if you work 20 hours a week, or less than that if you work less than that. The people yeah. who need more support get less support. Yeah, Fucking so at, at maximum, you're getting $46 a day here. And you have to reapply for this every week as the lockdown continues. I want to go back to the, the the not on any other welfare. So just to emphasize yeah. again, nobody who has gotten job seeker is eligible in any sort of respect. Is it if you've got it previously or you can't be on it right now? Yeah, you can't you can't be on it right now. So if you're on job seeker yeah. and remember, there are lots of people on job seeker who have jobs but are just mm -hmm. not earning yeah, enough. Because job seeker is below the poverty line by a significant margin. Every welfare is below the poverty line. And with things like Centrelink, because they have a thing where it's like, oh, if you've got a bit of a job, but not much, we'll give you a bit of Centrelink, but they only give you enough Centrelink to still make it so that you're under the poverty line. This government does not want people to be able to survive on any sort of welfare. They want you to die. Yeah. Thousands of bodies, again, at the hands of this government. And so <laughs> the, the crazy thing here is that it, it's this thing where you've had to have work cancelled, but had no pandemic or sick leave, but, but it's a permanent job. If you're work working a non-casual job that can say, we're in lockdown, fucking deal with it. We're not giving you any money or leave or anything. What? Like, that's that's not a job that is very common. Like, mostly if you have a job that closes down and gives you nothing, that's a casual job. Yeah. But if you have a casual job, you don't get this payment. And if you have a non-casual job, you're probably getting some kind of leave or wage of some sort or working from home. And so, I can't figure out... Well. I say I can't figure out who this is for. Obviously, they're <laughs> aiming for it to be for nobody. Yeah. Um, oh, and the absolute cherry on the cake is that there will be a retrospective compliance activity because they actually don't have the time to make you jump through the usual Centrelink hoops to get this. They are kind of, they will give you this payment if you say you need this payment, but there will be retrospective compliance activity, which means that if it turns out later that you didn't actually deserve this payment and they will be looking... 
they will take a pound of your flesh. For $500. For $500. It's robo-debt. Yeah. They're going to robo-debt this shit. And this is especially insulting because when they had JobKeeper and JobSeeker and it turned out businesses were rotting it for millions and millions of dollars when they didn't need it, Scott Morrison said, oh, if they want to pay that back, they can. We're not going to play the politics of envy. Businesses rotting JobKeeper is fine. Good on them for getting a bit of extra cash they need. But if you're someone on the poverty line, which you are, in order to get this, you've got less than $10,000 um, and and no, you know, stable support, too bad. You better fucking need that $500. It is shameless. See, one thing that really gets me about this entire, like, I, I know I was making a joke about the wizard's riddle, but <laughs> means testing is one of my most hated things about Mm. government bureaucracy. Like you can never just give someone welfare for the sake of wanting to help out. It always has to be just painfully, just every sort of red tape attached to it. And I don't even mean this in a libertarian sense. It's a very, it's not even necessarily conservative thing to be so pro means testing. A lot of liberals are like very, and I mean small liberals when I say that, are just very like, you know, they're so scared of people not getting what they think they deserve, that they think means testing is appropriate. You know what the best means testing is? A tax return. If you've earned too much above a certain level, they can pay it back at tax time. Like, you don't need to do any of this psycho shit. Just give them money when they need it. It's also just like the sort of, like, baseline assumption that it's saving money like Mm. you look at the sort of level of qualifications that you need to hit before you're eligible for the the pandemic payout compared to the amount of money that they're going to gladly sink into paying people to go over these numbers to administrate this robo debt system that sort of like i absolutely fucking bet they're going to spend more on compliance and enforcement than they will on actually giving out money yeah it's exactly like with robo debt where they spent hundreds of millions of dollars to scratch back some money that they then had to pay again, which meant that we ended up spending several billion in taxpayer money to whoever the fuck got paid during robo-debt, Centrelink or private companies or whatever. Um, It's the same as your Serena Russo job service providers, where we're paying parasites in order to make life difficult for unemployed people before we give unemployed people a tiny amount of money. It's the same with paying huge amounts of money to bloody the people who are employed to make sure people have a Mikey on Melbourne public transport. Mm. And then every now and then one of them beats someone up and suddenly you've got to pay out a court case instead of just having cheap public transport. Hey, the system isn't very good. Um, (laughs) I I think so much of like my anger about this is just seeing people who I love, close friends, just like. I have no money. Mm. Mm. And it's unnecessary. There's not even a reason that they should have no money. It's not even like we don't have enough. They have no money because someone has decided, yeah, fuck you. I want to talk about aged care and I want to introduce our villain of the week, who is the Minister for Aged Care, Richard Colbeck, who I hadn't personally heard about before, but he's become the main character uh, this week. He's now your enemy. <laughs> He's now my enemy. I've added him to the list, um, which is just everybody in government. Just so slowly he was expanding to be a federal MP's roster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know he was the minister for aged care, but apparently neither did he. Because friggin' he ate. Okay. Not a lot of people in Australia have died from COVID. We've done really well compared to most countries. It's been like a thousand or something. Hardly any. But most of those people, the vast majority of those people have been in aged care. And the vast majority of those have been in Victoria. So of the 910 deaths in Australia from COVID, 655 of those have been in Victorian aged care. And that is Richard Colbeck's problem because he is the Minister for Aged Care. But he has said in questioning in in Parliament... It's not my responsibility to hold anyone responsible. But it it is his responsibility. Yeah, fucking, he, yeah, he's the, the minister. The federal government is responsible for the vaccine rollout in aged care. That's a federal yeah. responsibility. Here's the interesting thing, though, in Victoria, because I can't really comment too much on, on other states. Victoria, 
most of our aged care homes are federally funded and the federal government is responsible for them, but they're outsourced to private companies uh, who make a mad profit off these things because they're skimming basically making any savings they can, charging anything they can for taking care of the most vulnerable people in the country. Um, 95% of aged care homes in Victoria are privately run. The other 5% are state run, which are actually run totally differently. They're run by the Victorian government, publicly funded, not making profits because they're a public service. My grandma is actually in a publicly run state home. And I can tell you, it is sweet. If I was in an aged care home, I would want it to be a state-run one. And she's out in the country, which probably helps as well. But it's things... And most of these deaths have been in the private ones, the vast majority. Because the state-run homes have much higher standards for staffing and care. They're much more accountable. And they have rules like during the, during the pandemic, they had, weren't allowed to have staff working at multiple homes. Now, the private homes had that restriction eventually as well, that staff could only work at one home, but the government dropped that restriction in November last year. Um, They said they did not believe there should be rules in place banning casual staff in aged care from accessing work wherever they could find employment. And they dropped this guideline while they were fucking up the vaccine rollout. Exactly. Well, before then, aka, we don't want to pay people enough to have secure work. We are more happy with people- and. All of these outbreaks are because of aged care workers being the vector of the virus. Because if you're in an aged care home, if you're a 95-year-old with dementia who relies on aged care workers to feed and shower and help you live, you're not going to Bunnings. You're not, you're not bringing the virus in. The virus is getting moved around by the workers because they're young people who are going out and buying food and going to the shops and having other jobs and other aged care. I'm doing a Mitch rant here. (laughs) (laughs) But the point is that Lang's Nana isn't going to five nightclubs down Chapel Street. No! My grandma is going to the back garden or occasionally seeing some other old friends, but she is in a facility where workers only work at that facility. Because fucking, you're in a pandemic, people. And these are the most vulnerable people. So the government admitted they were vulnerable. That's why they had the restriction. They dropped it as fucking soon as they could in November. Stuart Robert, who is in charge of disability, dropped the restriction and pay bonus for workers in disability homes as well uh, in January. And and the reason he gave for this, because it's a very related kind of industry, is... Workers and residents of group disability accommodation uh, are included in phase 1A as a priority cohort and will receive the vaccination. The vaccine will provide additional protection to reduce transmission in accommodation settings. AKA, we don't need to worry about where they're working. They're all going to get the vaccine. By March, they dropped the focus on disabled people getting the vaccine so they could focus on aged care. But the important thing here that we've been getting to that you're probably aware of is they fucked up the aged care vaccination as well. It has been a shambles. Just a shambles. Because aged care workers and disability workers are phase 1A, the most important people to get vaccinated. More important than 80-year-olds. They're phase 1B. It's more important to vaccinate the workers because they're the ones tracking the virus around. Because they're the ones getting out and about. And so the government threw money hand over fist at private companies to run this vaccine thing, which always goes well. In the budget, there was over 155 million in contracts to four private companies to provide Commonwealth vaccination centers. This is instead of getting the very qualified state public service to do this stuff. Sorry, I just want to, like, barge in just like the Kool-Aid yeah. man just to freak the fuck out about this. Why? Please do, I've been talking why? a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Hit it. Why, why did this happen? Why Why was contracts needed? <laughs> Literally well, could have distributed me- this in any other way that mm. any other vaccine has been distributed in the past. There's no reason for this. Why does the government ever give contractors to private companies? <laughs> it's because they're donors. They're all donors. <laughs> These are donors, like Sonic Healthcare was one of the contractors. They gave the Liberal Party in, in between 2011 and 2017, they gave them 500,000 in donations 
with 450,000 of that going directly to the federal branch of the Liberal Party. That's just one of the four private companies. The others all donated as well. Because they're private companies, they're meant to be providing private nurses um, and healthcare professionals from the private sector. They couldn't find them all, so they got state staff to do it, who we already could be publicly funding with no extra budget. And it turns out these these companies were only contracted to vaccinate the residents, not the workers. So the workers, Group 1A, are not getting vaccinated, except with the odd leftover dose, or if they got, got it done themselves, which they mostly couldn't because you couldn't access vaccines for a very long time unless you got it through the Commonwealth. And they didn't even track, they didn't even track who they were vaccinating. So Stuart Robert dropped the restrictions around where they can work mm-hmm. and, and getting them the pay bonus mm-hmm. because they were going to get vaccinated mm-hmm. and then didn't vaccinate them. Mm-hmm. And didn't even record the few that got vaccinated. So oh that the best estimation they could make just by counting the number of doses they've given out is about 10% of aged care workers have got the vaccine and only about 64% of nursing home residents so they fuck it's it's I cannot emphasize enough how much they fucked this up. Is that the full vaccine as well? Or Only is that- t- about 10 or 11 percent of aged care workers have got the full vaccine, but they don't even know that for sure because they're not counting this. And you'd think at this point they'd go, wow, that's kind of a problem because that's their phase one. A now they're, they're rolling out vaccines to, you know, 40 year olds and stuff, which is great. But what was even the point of having prioritized phases if you skip right over the most important part of phase 1A. The, uh, this is just always coming back to this, the, this, I suppose, the central conceit of the whole podcast, which is that sort of like every individual detail of a government strategy only exists to just sort of to make an distract and diffuse yeah. and like make it more difficult to pin responsibility on yeah. anything yeah. before... Any actual goal, the first priority of this government is always to make sure that they can't get caught doing anything. Mm-hmm. And then the second goal is to give some money to their friends. And then and the third goal, if it comes up, is to achieve the outcomes that they're claiming to be aiming at. I would say in there before the outcomes is get re-elected and get yourself a sweet, a sweet gig in the private sector. And then maybe at some point someone gets vaccinated, but that really doesn't matter. Um, yeah. yeah, because actually, if you look at this, it's first they fucked up the vaccines, but um, that was fine because they were like, oh, well, we've got priorities. We'll do the important ones first. And then they didn't do the important ones first because they were like, oh, well, you know, it's it's the private sector has, has been doing this. And then it was like, oh, no, well, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's not such a big deal. Maybe the rest of the world will vaccinate. Um, and so they've they've gotten the national cabinet together because they were like, oh, it turns out old people are still dying. Aren't they all dead yet? What happened? Um, and they decided- <laughs> it turns out if you have a bad plan and don't care about doing well, oh, it's hard. The consequences. <laughs> I didn't know that applied to us. Keeping in mind, all of the government got vaccinated, like, day one. Mm. Can we, like, extract, like, the vaccine from Scott Morrison? Like, <laughs> like how you take blood, except I just want to take it back from Scott Morrison. Ah, take the Look, blood as well. I would, I would support just giving it a shot. Yeah. <laughs> and if you just accidentally pulled out all of Scott Morrison's blood for no reason, yeah, that's fine. ah, well, win-win. So, <laughs> the National Cabinet got together and decided, and I don't know the process by which they decided this, not to make COVID vaccines mandatory for aged care workers. Now, maybe that's a more complex topic than it seems. It seems to me... <laughs> Like making a COVID vaccine mandatory for people taking care of the people most vulnerable to COVID eh, should be kind of a no-brainer. Um, keeping in mind the flu vaccine is mandatory for aged care workers. So they already have mandatory vaccines and they can have exemptions if they've got good reasons. Um, but no, no, no. COVID vaccine ah, shouldn't have to be mandatory. Paul Kelly, the chief medical medical (laughs) rockstar, he said health experts had raised concerns that making the vaccine mandatory could have unintended consequences, like people leaving their jobs instead of being forced to have the vaccination. Um, But, like, if you don't want to have a COVID vaccination, 
maybe you shouldn't be working with aged care people. Like, that might just be me. But it seems like an unintended consequence of mandatory vaccines might be that people don't die of COVID. That's not one of the federal government's goals, Lang. Come on. (laughs) No. The Department of Health has said, not only is it voluntary for workers to be vaccinated, it's also voluntary for them to disclose if they've been vaccinated. They should not be required to provide evidence to confirm their vaccination status. And that blows my mind. Not only are you allowed to not get vaccinated while taking care of the most vulnerable members of society. Okay, sure. You don't even have to tell us whether or not you've been vaccinated or provide evidence. You can say, yeah, I have been vaccinated or "Mm, I'll never tell. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that one is kind of fair, that last one, just because... You know, the the government's not providing that evidence to the people. <laughs> just, we're not fucking tracking anything. So no, if we started but, asking people to provide evidence, they'd have to. We'd have to do. have a, a reliable evidence system in place. Uh, uh, sorry, I just want to like intervene in here. There is actually there is supposed to be something that tracks all Australians, not just aged care workers, not any healthcare workers necessarily. But there is a um, there is a service um, through Services Australia called the Australian Immunisation Register, hmm. and that is supposed to be something that tracks everyone and all their vaccinations and so that helps you helps parents determine when their kids need vaccines what age they need them Hmm. um, when they need boosters and that sort of thing this is also a register that has come under fire from anti-vaccinators in australia for Hmm. many years because they don't want to be tracked by the government even though vaccines are definitely like contingent on needing a time (laughs) schedule they're not the thing the government is mostly tracking you through. We have a yes. census. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it is a salient point to bring up that the anti-vaxxers are a core constituency of the government. I think that's what it is. I think the government just, at its core, is a bit anti-vax and a bit not believing in the science. But it's like, you already need a vaccine to go to certain countries. You already need a flu vaccine to be an aged care worker. Why is this just a COVID thing? This is the end point of a conflict of freedom of, you know, freedom from travel, freedom of speech, freedom to, like, you know, do whatever you want and anti-government authoritarianism. That conflicts at its core with vaccines because vaccines are a public health measure. It's a selfless helping everybody. Doing a thing. When I get a vaccine, it doesn't help me that much. It's mostly about being part of a system where everyone has the vaccine and we eradicate polio. Exactly. It's for the greater good. And, like, you know, historically... Libertarians hate that shit. (laughs) Libertarians, (laughs) like, you know, obviously this is, like, goes against libertarian ethos, but uh, historically you know, education about vaccines has to be very specific about the positives of doing it for the greater good. There was a thread recently talking about um, the public health initiative that needed to be done to encourage teenage girls and their parents um, to get their parents to take teenage girls to go get the Gardasil vaccine, which is um, a vaccine that um, stops people from getting the human papillomavirus, which can cause cervical cancer. Yeah. It's like it's fundamentally the cervical cancer vaccine yeah. for the most part. Yeah. Mm. It's an enormous, like, huge health development. Like, it is literally the first and only existing vaccine that can, for all intents and purposes, prevent a cancer, which is huge. Mm. Um, and, of course, they needed to give it to teenage girls um, because it would be around the age before they get sexually active and therefore more likely to get HPV. Um, mm. I was a teenager at the time when this first was rolled out. And I very clearly remember the kinds of not just commentators, not just anti-vaxxers, but politicians, Barnaby Joyce, talking about Mm. the HPV vaccine, Gardasil, talking about it saying, oh, this will cause girls to be more sexually active, which is obviously (laughs) not true. You know how girls are like, oh, I don't want to have sex. I'm worried about HPV. But if I get this vaccine, I'm just going to go have as much sex as possible. That's basically Barnaby Joyce's thinking. Very ironic when you consider who Barnaby Joyce is anyway. It's any excuse for a culture (laughs) war, really. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Um, But the public health measures that they used was focusing on, as you said, the greater good. The idea that Hmm. you can stop, we can like completely eradicate potentially HPV. 
like you know mm. preventing a, a preventable cancer like you know just really emphasizing the benefits of what you're doing for the entire populace and like that- my parents are like pretty great with vaccines anyway but they would also be susceptible to the kind of messaging that Barnaby Joyce would be mm. doing so it is really important to get that kind of message out there and the, the whole idea of like the coronavirus vaccine is everyone needs to get it for the greater good Everyone wants to be able to go out and, you know, have a normal life again. I remember the the campaign for the cervical cancer vaccine because it was the the one with the band-aids that said, like, I did my bit or something. Yeah, that's right. And it was was very positive and it was also very pervasive. It was everywhere. I wasn't even in the eligible, like, uh, demographic for that vaccine, but I saw it everywhere and I knew everything about it. Yeah, they had billboards and all sorts of things. really good messaging. Yeah. And the the COVID vaccine should be a way easier sell because this is for a thing that we all know about. No one had heard about HPV causing cervical cancer unless you were paying attention to that kind of thing. Everyone knows about COVID. We've all just suffered through lockdown. This is a, a vaccine for something which is more under. It's it's more like a fluey kind of virus than a whatever HPV is. Um, this should be a no brainer, and the government has no vaccine messaging of any consistent sort. It's because so many of them don't believe in vaccines or believe that they're actively bad. And I actually think that the gov- that this is happening on purpose. They've almost encouraged this, not only a messaging vacuum, which has led to anti-vaxxers being able to fill that with misinformation, um, or journalists being able to be like, oh no, there were, there were four blood clot cases. Um, but it's, it's, it's created all of this, like, confusion about when the vaccines are available, who can get them, where you get them, how you get them, what ones we're getting. I still don't know most of those bits of information. Um, and I think that that is because the government hasn't done the vaccines properly. They haven't got them out here. They don't have them ready. And if they can say, oh, we could do the vaccines, it's because people don't seem to want them. It's not our fault because we haven't rolled them out. That benefits <laughs> them. They can say, oh, it's because of individuals. It's not because of the system. It, it just reminds me how, like, at the start of the pandemic, um, Scott Morrison and the federal government have been, like, just basically dragged screaming and mm. defiantly into actually doing something about the situation. But when it comes down to it, Scott Morrison himself doesn't think it's very serious because he Mm. is someone who depends on the experience of those around him. He has not seen anyone sick with coronavirus. I can tell you that straight up. The most sick person he's seen is Peter Dutton, and unfortunately nothing actually came of that. Um, Yeah, (laughs) because he doesn't have a normal circulatory system. I I think it's also just like if if you zoom out a little bit, it's just the the approach of the government to everything is not to – address problems ever mm. yeah. like climate they are actively disinterested in doing anything about it poverty actively disinterested coronavirus mm. actively disinterested like i mean it always comes back to me with fucking greg hunt and very very early on in melbourne's outbreak uh, initially oh, yeah. where he was tweeting about the sort of dangers of wearing masks yeah. and like all the sort of different considerations that have to go on in in there Thankfully, you know, the, the, the state government just made masks mandatory basically like an hour and a half after Greg Hunt was like releasing all of that messaging. So, it, it didn't sort of impact anything. But like the government is just ideologically opposed to addressing problems. That That's the fundamental issue there mm. is not that they don't want to do it or they need to be kicked and dragged or whatever. They don't believe that addressing a problem is part of their responsibility at all. Yeah. It's that, that rugged individualism. I got mine. If you didn't get yours, mm, maybe you just didn't deserve it. Maybe you didn't try hard enough. Also, like, who are you again? Like, there's just no consideration. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> we've, got a, we've got a body that hands out fossil fuel subsidies. Shout out this week. We've got a good one in for people who like mountains. What's up, Evie? Yeah, so this is passed on from our friend of the pod and just our general friend ourselves, Claire, who is a local Taswegian, and she has 
passed on this petition, uh, which is about Mount Wellington in Tasmania. A lot of people who have been to Hobart would have been to Mount Wellington. Um, Their roads really need improvement, but the Hobart City Council is allowing for works for a cable car, which will land a bit on the mountain called the Organ Pipes, really beautiful part of the country. Um, And if the cable car goes ahead, it will affect the local areas of South Hobart and add huge amounts of traffic of tourists through a very small and sleepy suburb. So she's passed along a petition um, to get the council to um, consider reconsider the plans to put a cable car in. And there's also an email template just um, to get the council to consider why they would put this in and the impact it would have on the area. So we'll put that in the show notes and shout out to Claire. Just a hard pivoting from like real big problems to, I'm not going to say that the cable car on the mountain is a small problem. The, the, the government <laughs> loves, it's just the government loves to fuck up things on every Zoom level. It's pretty neat actually when you think yeah. about it. <laughs> and that, like, wow, they really can just like really fuck up a national pandemic response to the same degree that they can just ruin, you know, local amenity. (laughs) The government has privatised a single mitochondria. It's just a really different spin on all politics is local politics. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again for listening to Not Good Enough. You can get in touch with us on all the socials at notgoodpod or email us at notgoodpod at protonmail.com. Um, send us an email with telling us what, what bits you like, what bits you want to change. Why why do they have the, the at symbol pronounced the same as just the word at when you're always saying email me at a thing at a thing? It's quite confusing. <laughs> Not Good Enough is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their oldest past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded.